turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. Uh, we finished our time in Paul's first letter, but today uh, we're going to jump in and intro 2 Thessalonians as well as uh, the first four verses of chapter 1, uh, looking at this letter that Paul wrote to a young and flourishing church in a series that we have entitled, A People in the Now Longing for the future. And so uh, with that, since it's the beginning of a new year, right, like we're seven days in to the new year, uh, one more long day away from kids going back to school on Tuesday, woo! Uh, <laughs> I want to say, uh, just to begin, Happy New Year. I hope that the holidays, that the Christmas season and the New Year were a sweet uh, time uh, for you and for your family and, and friends uh, as you gather together. And so, uh, man, as I think about uh, just kind of uh, when I think about our church and entering into the new year, my prayer uh, for myself and for us as the church is simply this, that this year would be a year where you fall more in love with God and His Word, and that as you fall in love with it, you would be transformed by it and walk in obedience to it. So simply, uh, my prayer for us is that we as God's people would uh, grow in our love for God and His Word, and not simply that, that uh, we uh, read it and hear, but as we do so, that we would be transformed by it, And as we're transformed by it, we would in turn walk in obedience to it. So I don't know about you, uh, but you probably have uh, some different things that you've resolved for this new year, right? Uh, Like maybe you have a list of one thing, maybe you have a list of ten things, maybe it's a hundred things that you've kind of written out that you want to see accomplished and see done this year. And so I don't know where you are with that, I don't know what, you know, you know, average your batting already seven days in. That, that's not the point. That's not what I'm concerned with. But we all have that, right? There's something ingrained in us as we end one year and begin to process what the new year is going to look like. We, uh, man, we set things out. It's something that uh, Haley and I try to do as as individuals, as a as a couple, as parents, and uh, and so we we try to create that time. And uh, but also, like we as we talked about it. Um, this year, Haley said, well, I've got two things. And I thought they were so good that I said, well, those are going to be my two things too. Uh, and so I don't have to do any work uh, in that regard. She gave two things. She said, this year, I'm simply going to do two things. And these are them. More water, more Jesus. More water, so literally just drinking more water, and then more Jesus. Now some of you are like, well, those should be swapped. Okay, more Jesus, more water, right? Like, but more water, more Jesus, simply that. And what she said, and I thought it was, she said, man, if I can do those two things, I think that all the, the list of other things that I would want to do, I think that some of those things will happen along the way. That's it. Drink more water and spend more time with Jesus in word, prayer, and then service. You see, so often we start the year with a hundred things, do we not? Like we just built maybe not a hundred, twenty, fifteen. Uh, we start this list and it just grows and grows and grows. And then uh, I think if we're not careful, the anxiety as the list grows, our anxiety grows. Or, you know, we've got a, uh, the, you know, not so much our resolve, it's more so like, oh my gosh, like we put all this weight on ourselves. I've got to accomplish these things. 
I want to see all these things happen. And they could be really, really good things, right? You see, while we start with the, the 15 or the 20 or however long your list is that we want to accomplish, man, in the end, like, if we do any of them, maybe we do two. You see, something I know is that if you simply fall more in love with God and His Word, I believe that other things will come along with that. Now, now I want you to hear me. I'm not speaking about some kind of prosperity blessing. No, rather what I'm saying is if any of you fall more in love with God and His Word, man, the fruit of the kingdom will take root in your heart and will bear fruit in your life. And so in this new year, may we begin how we ended in our time gathering by celebrating Jesus. The one who came to save and is coming again to make all things new by looking at a letter that really uh, that speaks a ton about his return. And so let me just remind us quickly, for those that maybe you haven't been with us through this series, or maybe uh, you've, you've been out the last couple of weeks as we kind of closed it out, let me just remind us of the purpose of the letter and why we're walking through it. So... Again, Paul is writing these two letters to a young church that are in the midst of facing immense persecution and pressure. You see, they're being told, turn back to your faith of old, be it paganism, be it uh, Judaism, or if you don't do those things, at least swear allegiance to and worship Caesar. You see, the issue that's come about, like after Paul shares the gospel and people come to faith, is people didn't like that these Christians, uh, that Christianity was growing in Thessalonica. And so they go to the Roman uh, authorities and they say, hey, these people are saying that this Jesus they follow is actually the true king. And so Rome said, well, we got to snuff that out. Caesar is the only one. And so persecution begins to happen. And so they're facing this pressure... But what's happened and what Paul has noted in the first letter and even as we're going to see in our time today is they haven't turned away. But rather they're actively living out the gospel towards one another and others in love and grace. You see, while they are wrestling, which is what we saw in First Thessalonians, and we're going to see even now, like as in the midst of what they're going through, they're living in faith. While they're wrestling, they're living in faith. They're living out their faith. And I believe that's so key and good. And I think that we all, man, we need to hear that regularly. That it's reality that you can wrestle and still have faith. You can have questions. Questions are okay. And guess what? You can take them to God. And God is big enough to handle them. It doesn't mean that he's going to answer the way that you want or when you want. But you can wrestle and still have faith. So when we think about Paul writing this letter to this church, like, man, what does it mean for us today? A people who live in the now, and again, just like them, we long for the future. I believe these letters are meant to encourage and inform us about what it means to be the church here and now by setting our focus and gaze not upon our circumstances, but on the one who has called us into his kingdom. Uh, Essentially, we are to keep our eyes upon Jesus. You see, the call to keep our eyes on Jesus as we sit in these letters, I believe it helps us to get a better understanding of how Christians are actually to view history. 
You see, these two letters reveal not just how we are to view history, but how this view impacts our faith and impacts the way we live. So this is what I mean when I talk about history. Really four things. How it started, how it's gone, how it's going, and how it all ends. Now that's a big picture thing, right? Like we want to know like how did all of creation start? How, how was the world created? How has it been, uh, you know, how has it been going? How is it going now? And the ultimate question, how is it all going to end? And so we see that big picture, but every one of us personally, like that's something that we wrestle with, right? Whether you uh, have faith in Jesus, faith in something else, or faith in nothing, like you were wrestling with those questions. How did it begin? How has it been going? How is it going currently? And how does it all end? You see, people are always trying to figure out how to view history and what it, what all, what, what it all means for life and the way that we live, right? People are always searching for, for some kind of validity, for some kind of purpose and meaning to the world around them. But how many of you feel like me? Like There are many moments where that's, it's, it's not very easy. To understand at times what's going on and why it's happening and when it happens. As I was reading this week, I heard uh, uh, somebody say that uh, there was a person, they don't list their name. They said this about uh, how to search for meaning or understand the meaning of life. They said the most accurate chart of the meaning of history is the set of tracks made by a drunken fly with feet wet with ink. Staggering across a piece of white paper, they lead nowhere, the writer says, and reflect no pattern of meaning. At times in life, we can have moments, we can be in situations, there's circumstances and stuff happens where we feel that, right? Like we're just wandering aimlessly and it's like, what is going on? I feel lost, I feel without purpose, where is the meaning? And as people look at history, a lot of people, they view history in some pretty similar forms. Let me give three ways that I think people view history. This isn't an exhaustive list, but one, some view history as cyclical. So those that believe in reincarnation, right? Like when you die, you come back as something else. Like you live your life, you die, you come back. You live your life, you die, you come back. But... How you come back depends on the many factors of how well you lived or didn't live while you lived. So if you lived a good, upstanding, maybe moral or uh, man, life of justice or whatever the motivation is, when you die, you come back better. Now, I don't know what better is, but you come back better. But if you live a worse life, you come back worse. And again, I don't know what constitutes that, right? Like, is a donkey good or bad? It's good in my eyes. But like, how, how do you, like, how do you justify? Like, who, who, who tells you? And so it's cyclical. But then on the other side of that, some follow uh, nihilism, which is uh, that, that really the reality is life is meaningless. Atheists and agnostics camp out here. Man, whenever I thought about this, I was reminded of just kind of my own upbringing. So I really had two kind of main uh, camps growing up that kind of sought to influence my life. On the one side, I had Christianity that was really Christianity by name only. If you're a good person, you get in. Right? Like, anybody like experience that? Like, just be a good person. 
If you're good enough, which I always question, like, what does that, again, what does that mean? Who defines good? But on the other side in my life and my upbringing, uh, man, two of the most influential men in my life growing up taught me so much were either, either atheists or uh, I'm sure they were at least agnostic. Meaning they didn't believe in any God or they believed in some form of God. And so something I heard from these two men out of their mouth often growing up was, hey Kyle, you win some, you lose some, and maybe you heard this, but mostly you lose some, and then you die. Oh, I had a great upbringing, right? It was really positive. It was in many ways. And I know like some of that, like they were jesting, like there was some joking behind that. Like it was usually when we were working cattle and like they would all take off and we couldn't get them pinned and they would be like, you win some, you lose some, most you lose some, and then you die, Kyle. Uh, let's move on. Uh, but like that, like that, that stuck with me. And I think it's something I had to wrestle with. Because, man, I believe that, honestly, if I were to press them, they actually believe that. That you just lived your life as well as you could. You worked hard. If you stood on this side, if you're good enough, you got in. But it, it maybe for them, particularly, it was like, well, it doesn't matter. You just die. You just go, nothing happens. But I believe there's a third way. And it's the way of Christianity. You see, when we read the Bible, we see history not as cyclical or meaningless, but linear and with immense purpose. You see, the story of redemptive history, the story of God is, as we term it, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Another way to say that is God made it, man broke it, Jesus fixed it, and will restore it. And it's this view of history specifically that Paul has in mind when writing these letters to the church in Thessalonica. Particularly, and some of his focus is even on the end part of that, of, of, hey, what does it look like when Jesus is going to restore it? Most argue that these two letter, in these two letters, we get four of the most important New Testament passage on eschatology or the end things in all of Scripture. You see, Paul's hope is to exhort this church and us today to be a people who live in the now, no matter what it looks like, no matter how we feel, while also longing for the future, when Christ will return and make every sad thing untrue. We saw this in 1 Thessalonians, where he encourages and celebrates this young church, but also challenges them to keep going. In the second letter, we're going to see him continue to encourage this church to keep going, and really in the face of three forms of opposition. You see, Second Thessalonians is a response to a report that, that Paul received probably weeks, maybe even a couple of months after the first letter came. So Paul sends this first letter, and his hope and prayer is that, man, it will build up, and I believe it does encourage the church, but guess what? The outside influences continue to be the outside influences. This was written to a specific group of people who were facing a specific set of circumstances. And guess what's happened? Persecution has gotten worse. And so really what's taken place is there's three groups of people that are disturbing the church. And Paul, in this letter, is going to respond to all three. The first group of people are the persecutors. You see, God's people in Thessalonica and men, us today and all who face persecution in varying degrees and forms or even just the broken reality of life, we begin to ask this question, hey, 
Why is it getting worse? You ever like, uh, ha- like believe this kind of half truth or maybe it's just a blatant lie that if I do all the right things, like follow Jesus and go to church and all that, my life will go good. You ever believe that? And when something bad happens, you're like, nope, I just need to, and I'm going to follow Jesus more. I'm going to do that. And then you ask yourself, like, why in the world is it getting worse, right? Because like the next day something else happens and you just look, you're like, God, what you, I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. But we forget that Jesus didn't say following him would mean that things would always get better. Ultimately, but he says in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. So these people are questioning, man, why such affliction? Why am I walking through such deep suffering? Why do they continue to persecute us? And so Paul is going to address it. He's going to seek to encourage this church and us today. Secondly, there's a group of false teachers that we saw even in the first letter. They've been circulating a document that taught that Christ's return had already come and they had missed it. Hey, you thought like Jesus was going to come back? He already did. You missed it. It's over. So Paul's going to address that. And then lastly... Because of all this, there's a group of idlers. Again, we saw this in the first letter that, man, they're refusing to work. And Paul's like, hey, you're becoming a busybody. You're not minding your own business. You need to work. Stop being idle. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to address these things by calling them and us to set our gaze upon Jesus, trusting that he is with us in every circumstance and he will return and set all things right. And in light of that, may we live radical, gospel-centered, and hope-filled lives for God, for one another, and for the world around us. And so with that before us, let's look now at Paul's introduction by reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so when reading uh, really any of Paul's letters, this, if you know anything about Paul's writing, this is the typical greeting that we get, right? But that being said, when reading Paul's letters, it's these two verses that we commonly brush past so that we can get to the meat of what Paul is really talking about, right? We already know how he's going to greet. We probably know how he's going to end each letter. And so we just brush past these things because I want to get to the meat. What is Paul really after? You see, we treat these letters like presents on Christmas morning, right? Now, some of you, like, when you go, like, you pick out the color, the hue, the theme, the pattern of all the wrapping paper, right? And you put it all together, and it looks great. And on Christmas morning, everyone sits down, and guess what? No one gives, like, they're just ripping. They don't care about the wrapping paper. They just want to get to what's inside it. And it doesn't like, it looks good, yes, but hey, let's, let's get past that. What's inside? You see, for just a moment, let's not do that with this letter. And the reason I don't want us to do that is because Paul understands something that we need to understand. Which is that God wastes nothing. So even the introduction is important because this introduction lays out our identity as believers that gives us a foundation to delve into the action or responsive faith we're to live out 
in the face of persecution, in the face of false teaching, in the face of the threat of idleness. And so look at where we see this, because after introducing himself, Silvanus and Timothy, Paul addresses the letter to the church of the Thessalonians. But you see, they're not simply the church of the Thessalonians. Look look at what they are in the text. He says, the church of Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, God wastes nothing and he wants us to hear this today. Because guess what? All who follow Jesus, for all who follow Jesus, we don't follow based on what we do in following. We follow as a result of being in God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our identity rests in our union with Christ. And from that union, we then view all of life and we live our lives for the glory of God alone. One more note, just on this introductory part. This identity, as we read it, again, this letter was written to a church. It wasn't written to an individual. It was to be read in front of the entire church. And so it is not an identity that's to be individualized, although as individuals we are in Christ. But as Newt Larson states, this identity, and you could read this, like if we were to put ourselves in that position, it would be Center Church Brenham, in God the Father, in Christ Jesus. You see, this is a good description of any local church. Grounded in a particular city or town. Belonging to the community but connected to our Lord. The church lost in rights is an assembly of people. Called out from the city's throng to worship Christ. Then to be sent back into the city to proclaim and live his goodness. You see this is the perspective that Paul gives to identity when he begins the letter. And then he continues, as is his habit, by proclaiming grace and peace to them. You see, Paul takes the source of their identity, which is in God and Christ, and the result of that, the overflow of that, is naturally the bestowment of immeasurable grace and peace in our lives. For God is the wellspring of grace. And again, grace is a gift freely given that cannot be earned or gained by personal effort. God's grace, and this should be, again, a relief, is not dependent upon us, nor is it hindered by us. His grace is not dependent upon us, and it's not hindered by us. What that means is that today, as a follower of Jesus, there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing that you can do to make God love you less. And along with grace comes peace. Which according to scripture, peace is only found in Christ. You see what peace does, the term there is a legal definition. It's talking about their legal standing before God. You see God because he is holy and also he is a just judge. And so we who are broken by sin, man, we are deserving of wrath. Apart from Christ, we have no peace. But he came, Jesus came and took the penalty for our sin. He took the wrath of God upon himself so that we might be made innocent, reconciled unto God, and receive peace, not wrath. 
Man, what a beautiful way to begin a letter to a young church that's facing worsening persecution and false teaching. And so we get this introduction, and then what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to just close out with the rest of Paul's introduction in this letter by looking at three really pictures of thanksgiving that correlate kind of again to the first letter, but just are a little bit different. By reading verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. Okay, so, in your life, when you address someone, when was the last time you started your conversation with thanksgiving to God for them? Like they're standing before you and that's how you like, hey, before we dig, like I just want to take a moment and I just want to express to you my thanksgiving to God for you. Like when's the last time you did that? Like I... Probably not in a long time, if ever, right? Like in this kind of manner and context. Like I tell people I'm thankful for them. But Paul begins this way. And I think one of the reasons that we don't, there's a couple of reasons, but uh, man, one of them is, the reason we don't begin with thankfulness is because we are too quick to what? Critique. So when we address people, we begin with, well, let me tell you what you're doing wrong, and then I'll build, let me break you down so I can build you up. But that's not what Paul does here. But also, I think one of the reasons that we really struggle with this kind of addressing one another with thanksgiving unto God, again, the the focus, we're going to get into it, is upon God, is because, man, it's a little awkward, right? Like, how many of you feel awkward, like, when you receive, like, somebody thanks you and, like, gives you a compliment and really tries to build you up? Yeah. Good job. I didn't even have to say, hey, this is your time. Like, shoot up. Like, man, like, we can be honest with that. Like, at times, like, it, 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 it is awkward to give it, right? But also, it's awkward to receive it. What if they, what if they reject it? What, you know, sometimes the reason we don't want to receive it is because we don't truly believe that our identity is set in God, in Christ Jesus. But that's why Paul begins there. He says, hey, if your identity is here, guess what? You can handle this Thanksgiving that's about to happen. You see, as I thought about it, it's, it's one of those things that's not common, but I thought of three moments that I've seen this, this type, again, I can't correlate it fully, but this type of thanks and thanksgiving play out. And the first, again, is, is some of these are well-meaning, others are just poor ways of doing it, it's the sandwich critique, right? Like you go into a conversation, you're going to have to say some hard stuff, so what do we tell people? Hey, just sandwich it between some good stuff. And so what we do is we take the first piece of bread, and that's the Thanksgiving. We say, I just want you to know that I really love you, and I'm thankful for you. And it's a really thin slice of bread, because guess what? We want to get to the meat of how they've angered us, and upset us, and and hurt us, and uh, that they should be so ashamed, but that's the meat of it. And so then we, we do that, and then we jump in to usually a longer, more detailed list of, hey, here's the meat. And then we say, oh, oh, wait, if we remember, we put the other piece of bread on top. 
And usually it's some form of the, the southern version of bless your heart, right? Lord, just bless your heart. Like, I love you. And that person's sitting there and they're like, but I don't feel like you really love me or you're thankful for me because really you just pretty much told me you want to choke me in the meat portion of this thing. But the second way I've seen this, and I, again, it was well-meaning, and I think it has some benefit at times. Have any of you have ever been to a birthday dinner for someone and they make everyone go around the table and say a reason they're thankful for what God has done in their life? I'd never experienced that until I was in my 20s and I went over to this big family's house, not my current family, okay? <laughs> and I went over there and it was someone's birthday. And I didn't really know that member of the family, but guess what? They required me to say something. And I'm listening and I'm like, I so I just like put a bunch of stuff they'd already said together and just laid it out there. But every other time I knew it was someone's birthday, I didn't want to go to that dinner. Or I wanted to just excuse myself during that portion of the meal, right? Because I felt awkward. Like it, I didn't know how to give it. And also like if it was my birthday, how do I receive that? But then there's one more. Uh, and I've done this as a parent. Responding to unkind words by saying this. You have to say three things that you're thankful about that person. And the look on my child's eyes is, can you just ground me or spank me? <laughs> right? And it's, I, I believe, like, it's a good thing. I think that we should teach our, like, we're called to raise our kids up in the wisdom instruction. Lord, we should do that. But sometimes it's not necessarily helpful. It doesn't work out that well because at times, in that moment, guess what? Their heart isn't there. Your heart might not be there. Their heart's not there. And so what you get instead of, hey, I'm thankful for this, is just a grumbling response of mumbles, right? You know, and you're just like, no, what? No, say it. And they can't get it out because they're so angry. Also, maybe we should start with one and not three. You see, Paul begins with thanksgiving. This is exactly how he begins the letter to the church, which again is not uncommon for Paul. He actually begins 1 Thessalonians and ends 1 Thessalonians with thanksgiving. You see, what he's doing here in this portion of the letter is that he thanks, he's giving thanks for God's grace through this church who again is facing what feels like relentless persecution and doubts about suffering and Jesus' return. But you see, look at the focus of the thanksgiving. Paul is giving thanks to God. His focus in the midst of all of it is not to give some pep talk that puffs up this church so they feel like they can keep going if they just try harder because they have it in themselves to do it. No, all of this is based upon the work of God, and that work is worthy of being thankful for. You see, this is what we should be doing towards one another. We should be thanking God for the work we see Him producing in one another, and then, as we see in the text, expressing that to one another. Even going so far as to stay, start a conversation by telling someone how thankful you are for the work God is doing in them. And so Paul lays out kind of three forms of thanksgiving. And, and he actually does something very similar in the first letter. But there's some slight differences that I want to touch on in our time. Way number one is he just lays out simple thanksgiving. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul begins simply by stating, We always thank God for you. 
But here in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, we ought always to give thanks to God, which again, he's the source. He's the focus of thanksgiving for you, brothers and sisters. And then he says, as it is right, maybe your translation says, rightly so. Now we can look at that and we can like, well, Paul, you say you ought to do this. Like, where's your heart at, man? But, but that's not what he means here. Ought is not some form of guilt-induced thanksgiving. Paul's not expressing gratitude out of mere duty to the church, but out of duty to God because God is the faithful one and He is worthy of thanksgiving. You see, it is right to give God thanks for who He is, what He has done, and what He is doing in and through the church. Again, the church is a people, not a building. And the result of seeing God's work in the church, it's only right for us to give thanks. And so we see just this simple, he says, man, this is an overflow. As I see what God's doing, it is right. It's very good. It's needed for me to just be thankful to God. Next, we see thanksgiving as a result of the faith, love, and hope that Paul sees as being marked in this young group of believers. So in 1 Thessalonians, Paul lays, the the, lays out the productive ways that faith, hope, and love are being expressed in Thessalonica. When he goes through these things in the first letter, he says so much so that, man, these things are impacting and influencing churches all throughout Macedonia. But here in, sec- in the second letter, Paul gives thanks not because of what they're producing, but actually how they're progressing. You see, as the church, may we never become so focused with what faith produces that we miss out on the beauty of a faith that progresses in depth. An example of this is, man, when we see just an area of growth and holiness in someone's life. Maybe the fruit of the Spirit, we see, you know, patience, reflected love, joy. Like they just, like you start to see it just grow in them. You see, we're quick to celebrate big outward acts of faith, but we don't give enough thanks for the daily acts of faithfulness. When we see faith progressing, deepening, man, becoming stronger, and there's depth added to it. It's no longer surface level. This is what Paul says. He says, man, I'm thankful because your faith is growing abundantly. He says, your love for one another is increasing. And he doesn't use the word hope explicitly here, but in verse 4, he says, man, I'm thankful for your steadfastness and faith. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, when he talks about hope, he said that hope produces steadfastness and faith. He says these things are inspired or they are a result of the hope that we have in Jesus. And so Paul simply thinks, for the work that God's doing. Secondly, he, he thanks because he sees the progress of their faith, hope, and love. And then lastly, Paul thanks God by boasting about what God has and is doing in the church. We, we again see this in First Thessalonians. Paul boasts that God has chosen these people for the purpose he's chosen them for. But you see here, Paul's boasting is due to the result or progress that he sees that grace has had within them. His boasting is welling up because he's, man, something is, he says, as you've gotten a greater understanding of Jesus, as you've, man, understood the gospel more fully, guess what? Something's taken place inside of you. 
And man, that's worth boasting about. You see, this thanksgiving overflows into boasting to God for His work of grace in and through the church. In the midst, Paul says, of their stead, he says, in your steadfastness and faith. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial, in the midst of things you may never maybe have expected. Now, as we think about this word boasting, I think like when we hear it, boasting is kind of a difficult term. Like we see a tension between thankfulness and boasting. It's a difficult term to grasp because with it comes tension when we place it with thanksgiving. You see, thanksgiving commonly through scripture gives credit to God. But boasting seems to give credit to us. So we can look at that and we can say, wait, wait, no, no. We, we see like our boasting is only to be in the Lord. But why? Like why does it seem this way? Well, actually, Paul in this letter, he takes boasting and he puts it in its proper place. Because his boasting is not giving credit to the church but to God. Which is why he says our boasting about your steadfastness and your faith is rooted. Guess what? The only reason they have steadfastness is because of the steadfast love of Jesus. The only reason they have faith is because of the steadfast love of Jesus that bestows grace upon them. And so the result is this. When talking about God, and this is true for us today, when talking about God, we thank God for His grace. But when talking to humans, we boast of His grace. I think that's a lesson for us regarding our attitude towards other believers when we see them living out faith well. That we would be quick to boast of His grace towards them. You see, I believe there's really two common responses when it comes to this attitude of uh, of thankfulness and boasting uh, before God for what He's doing in others. One, we uh, go to one extreme and we move to flattery, right? Which I think that's the big fear with boasting. Is like we, I'm just, you just flatter someone, right? Which that's a temptation for all of us. To where we tell people, you're the bomb, right? You're not. I'm not. Like God loves you, but we are not the bomb, okay? Sometimes we see that and like they believe they're the bomb, right? I'm the goat, right? Like I hear that all the time in my house. I'm like, no, you're not. But like we, like, so we, we, at times we flatter, but then also like we know we're not supposed to do that. So we go to the other extreme. And the other extreme I think is, man, is far more common. And it's this, silence. We see the work of God in someone and we stay silent about it. We don't boast about it to God and tell them like, man, when, I, when I'm praying for you, like I'm boasting that God's doing this in you. I'm not boasting in you. I'm boasting in what God's doing in and through you. You see, silence, though, man, it's destructive, especially in the church because it can produce this, this mentality that I'm never enough and maybe I should just give up. But again, there's a third way that Paul shares. And it's simply this. Tell them you boast about them to God. 
Go to them and say, we th- I thank God for you, and this is why. So I love that Paul, again, just a few weeks, maybe a couple of months after writing the first letter, hears this, and it's not a pep talk. It's, hey, remember who you are in Jesus. Remember the grace and peace that you've received. And then guess what? No, man, it's like a proud dad, like a healthy proud dad. He says, man, I'm so thankful to God for you. And yeah, you win some and you lose some. And right now it feels like you're losing a lot. But guess what? If you're in Christ, when you die, man, it's just beginning. You live. And so how do we respond? Well, I think there's a few ways. First, we remember that God is the source of our identity. For union in Him with Christ, we receive grace and peace. You have to begin there. I mean, if you aren't a follower of Jesus, if you haven't turned from your sin and and received His free gift of grace, you have no peace. And you'll always be like that fly with ink on its feet just walking around the paper and everything's history is meaningless. But if you're a follower of Jesus, remember that He is the source of our identity. Secondly, remind one another of this. We are to be as Paul is to the church in Thessalonica. And when we see one another struggling, say, hey, I want you to remember and the grace and peace of God in your life. But secondly, and it may be awkward and weird, and this is why I'm thankful for what God's doing in you. Which leads to the next response. So we would grow in a posture of thanksgiving towards God and amongst one another. That we wouldn't just be thankful to God, but we would show our thankfulness to God by boasting to God about what we see in others. I think we do that in prayer, but also we do that in ways so that they know it. Not to puff them up, not to flatter them. But to say, hey, remember who you are. And so this is my challenge for you. That you would thank God for one person daily in prayer. Express why and boast to God about the grace and peace you see Him producing in them. So this week, just take one person a day. One person you know and say, God, I'm thankful for this person. This is why. And then God, thank you that you're doing fill in the blank in them and through them. Secondly, that you would show your thanksgiving by expressing how you see faith, love, and hope increasing in another believer when you see it this week. I'm not saying three, just one. Okay? And then lastly, one time, boast publicly about the work you see God doing in someone else, to someone else. Don't flatter, but don't be silent. And be uncomfortable until you get comfortable. So I'm going to have the team come back up. And I want to invite you for just a moment to respond to the reality of God's grace. That He is the source of grace and peace. That He is the source of our thanksgiving. That He's the focus of all our thanksgiving, even in the midst of learning what it means to be thankful for one another.
And maybe even ask God to just go ahead and just place some people on your heart. Maybe people that you, you know, don't necessarily know really well, but maybe just ask them, God, is there anyone struggling, going through something that I can encourage, that I can just proclaim, man, thankfulness for them that they are in you. And then you would ask God to give you eyes to see what he's doing and the work he's doing in others' lives. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And once I pray, um, if I can go ahead and get those that are going to be passing out the elements for communion today, if they can come forward as they make their way forward. Um, today, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, whether you're a partner here or not, I invite you to come and join by uh, sharing in communion with us as a reminder of the grace and peace that we have. Because Jesus allowed his body to be broken, he laid down his life and his blood poured out that we are covered in grace and that we are given peace. And so what you'll do is you make your way down the center after I pray and go sit back down and I'll lead us in the sharing of communion. But today, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, as even as I talk, if you're like, I, have no, I don't have peace, I don't know what grace is, we would ask that you abstain, but I would ask that you come talk to me afterwards. Not so that you can be harped with condemnation and judgment, but rather, I might simply proclaim to you the grace that is only found in Jesus. If not me, if you know someone here that does know that peace and grace, that you would go talk to them. So once I pray, you can make your way down the middle and we'll receive communion together. Jesus, thank you. We thank you for your life, your death and your resurrection. God, we thank you that no matter the circumstance, that uh, as uh, your church, as your people, God, that that we are we have union with you, that you are near to us in our joy and in our sorrow, that you are a present help, and that you give us grace and peace. And God, I thank you for this church, for these people. I thank you for what you have done in their lives and what you're doing in their lives. And uh, God, I pray that, that that work continues in amazing and beautiful ways. And so God, as your people, may we be thankful to you and you alone because you deserve all glory, honor, praise, and thanksgiving for the community that you brought us into. Your church. And God, may we be quick to express that, not simply to you, but also to one another. So that your church might be built up for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.